For many Americans, the name Lizzie Borden is synonymous with murder, and not just any murder, but the brutal, savage murders of her own father and stepmother on a hot August morning in 1892. What started out as a day like any other in the Borden household quickly turned into one of unspeakable horror and tragedy, when Andrew Borden and his wife, Abby, were hacked to death with a hatchet shortly after the family ate breakfast. To this day, most people remain convinced that Lizzie was the culprit, vilifying her and labeling her as one of the most notorious criminals in American history. However, the question remains, why would she carry out such a heinous crime? Were her actions understandable and even somewhat justified? Could someone else have been involved and or responsible? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. The earliest reference to Lizzie Borden in popular culture dates back to at least the mid-1890s. It comes in the form of a disturbing, unsettling nursery rhyme that's quite familiar to many Americans. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother forty wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father forty-one. While the verse is an exaggeration, Andrew, the father, had in fact only suffered eleven blows, while Abby, the stepmother, had been dealt eighteen, undoubtedly created by overzealous newspaper editors in order to sell more morning and evening editions, it nevertheless has captured the public's imagination, and has cemented Lizzie's reputation as a crazed, axe-wielding murderess. However, while the evidence to this day overwhelmingly implicates her as the prime suspect, is it possible that her actions may well have been understandable and even justified? Before we delve into the theory surrounding her motives, let's first pay the Bordens a visit and return to the scene of the crime. The house at 92 2nd Street, now 230 in Fall River, Massachusetts, has all the staples of the iconic American dream home. A picket fence, shutters around the windows, and room enough to comfortably accommodate the five people who live within it. Andrew, the head of the household, does quite well for himself and his family, though he has the reputation of being extremely frugal. Having amassed his fortune first through the sale of furniture and caskets, then property development, and, later on, through the direction of several textile mills, he and his second wife, Abby, look after their two young adult daughters, Emma and Lizzie, a live-in maid named Bridget Sullivan, whom the two daughters call Maggie, an immigrant from Ireland, lives there as well, performing various household chores and helping the family maintain the property. From the start, the relationship between Lizzie and her stepmother was strained at best, with Lizzie resentfully and condescendingly referring to her as Mrs. Borden. She believed that Abby had married her father solely for his wealth and took great pains to avoid her whenever possible, which may account for the fact that she took to keeping pigeons in the family barn. Arguments between Lizzie and her parents became far more frequent after her father's marriage to Abby, with one fight in particular about a month before the murders causing both Lizzie and Emma to take an extended vacation in the nearby town of New Bedford. Everything, however, would come to a dramatic crescendo on the morning of August 4th, 1892, when tragedy would swiftly and decisively strike the Borden household. The family had just finished eating breakfast. A guest, John Morse, had stayed with the Bordens the previous night and had supped with them that morning before announcing that he would be going into town to buy oxen and visit his niece. He reportedly left about 8.45 a.m., with Andrew himself leaving to go for a walk sometime after 9 a.m., Maggie, the housekeeper, went upstairs to make the sisters' beds. 
It's believed that between 9.30 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. is when Lizzie murdered her stepmother, with Abby having been cut on the side of her head with a hatchet before being dealt 17 more blows to the back of her skull. During this time, Maggie had fallen asleep taking a nap after tidying up the sisters' rooms. Upon Andrew's return after 10.30 a.m., he inquired about his wife's whereabouts, to which Lizzie said that she'd gone into town. Andrew promptly fell asleep on the living room sofa. As he dozed, Lizzie yet again took the hatchet and killed him, hacking him a good eleven times. Maggie later testified that shortly after 11 a.m., Lizzie called her downstairs, claiming that somebody had come inside the house and killed her father. The local authorities were notified and showed up at the Borden home shortly thereafter. There were conflicting reports from Lizzie from the get-go, whose stories surrounding the murders didn't add up at times. Not only that, but detectives also noted that she was far too calm and collected for someone who had reportedly happened upon the dead bodies of both her stepmother and father. Upon searching the house, they found a few hatchets in the basement, including one whose handle had been broken off with most of the wood removed. It was also covered in dust in a way that, police believed, was perhaps made to look as if it had been untouched for quite some time. Lizzie was confined to her house with her sister, Emma, and Maggie that same night, during which time a police officer reported seeing Lizzie enter her cellar with a pail and kerosene lamp. She emerged some time later and appeared to wash her hands over an outdoor basin. But her suspicious behavior didn't end there. Two days later, when she was officially deemed a suspect in the case, she was seen tearing up an old dress to burn because it was, quote, covered in paint, unquote. While it was never ruled to be the one she wore on the day of the murders, most people believe she was destroying it due to evidence of blood spatter. Four days later, on August 8th, Lizzie appeared at an inquest hearing in the town courthouse. All those present were quick to point out that her behavior was quite erratic, which in part could have been the result of small doses of morphine a local doctor had administered to calm her nerves. Her story was sloppy and rife with gaps and inaccuracies and seemed to change minute by minute. The district attorney presiding over the case was noted for being harsh and confrontational, though that garnered little sympathy from her friends and extended family, who, by the time the inquest was over, had switched their opinion from innocent to guilty. Then on August 11th, she was served with an arrest warrant and was promptly imprisoned. By now, all of Fall River, as well as much of the state of Massachusetts, were following Lizzie's story in the papers, hanging on every word. But the inquest was nothing compared to the trial that followed almost a year later. June 5th, 1893 was a warm, balmy day in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and one that was already marred with foreboding. Four days prior, on June 1st, yet another hatchet murder had occurred in Fall River. Only this time, the culprit was one José Correa de Melo, a Portuguese immigrant. The victim, Bertha Manchester, had been hacked to death in her kitchen. Lizzie's defense attorneys, former Massachusetts Governor George D. Robinson, Andrew Jennings, and Melvin O. Adams, were quick to point out the similarities between the two cases, though it was later established during Mello's own trial that he'd been nowhere near Fault River on the night of the Borden murders. Despite this, the entire town and much of the country waited with bated breath for updated news stories in papers across the nation. The trial of Lizzie Borden was one of the most heavily publicized court cases not just in its own time, but all time. The media frenzy surrounding the proceedings often draws comparisons to the O.J. Simpson trial of more recent history, in which the public's appetite for details reached a fever pitch. From the start, a major point of contention in the case was the dust-covered hatchet head with a broken handle the authorities had found upon their initial search of the Borden residence. Prosecutors argued that the handle had been removed by the killer, as it would have been covered in blood. One of the officers called to the stand who had searched the house testified that he'd found the rest of the hatchet's handle, but another contradicted him on this. 
Lizzie's whereabouts on the morning of the murders was naturally called into question as well, with Lizzie herself testifying that she had been in the family barn from the time after breakfast up until the moment she had, quote, discovered, unquote, her father's lifeless body and promptly called the housekeeper downstairs. Two men, whose connections to Lizzie or the Borden family remain unclear, confirmed this testimony. Also brought to the jury's attention was the dress that Lizzie burned because it had, quote, paint on it, unquote, though the defense never challenged this claim. Shoddy legal work like these instances were peppered throughout the trial. Evidence and testimonies were withheld, such as the fact that Lizzie had visited a local druggist the day before the murders to inquire about and or purchase prussic acid, a form of cyanide. In the end, 15 days after the trial had begun, Justin Dewey, the associate justice presiding over the case, delivered his summation in favor of the defense before the jury was sent to deliberate. It took them just 90 minutes to do so, in which they returned with a verdict to acquit Lizzie of the murder charges. Outside the courthouse, she told reporters that she was, quote, the happiest woman in the world, unquote. Despite the jury's verdict, Lizzie still remains the primary suspect in the murders of her father and stepmother, though there are many theories surrounding her motives. What reason, aside from being a cold-blooded psychopath, could she possibly have had for wanting to kill her parents? In 1967, writer Victoria Lincoln proposed that Lizzie perhaps suffered from some sort of dissociative disorder, and that the murders were carried out during a particularly nasty fit brought on by the disease. Further conjecture has led to another theory that Andrew and Abby Borden may have discovered that their daughter was carrying on an illicit affair. Not with a man, but with a woman, one who may have been a great deal closer to the family than initially thought. Maggie, the housekeeper. Questions surrounding Lizzie's sexuality have fueled many debates in recent years, and one of the more salacious ideas is that she may have been romantically and sexually involved with the live-in maid. The most credible theory, however, appeared in a 1992 article in commemoration of the 100th anniversary of the crimes. In it, Marsha R. Carlyle of American Heritage Magazine offers an even more interesting hypothesis, that Lizzie was the victim of physical and sexual abuse at the hands of her father. Carlyle suggests that Lizzie may have endured such treatment for years before finally snapping and killing the man responsible for her misery. Why, then, would she murder her stepmother as well? Carlyle's answer? because she was aware of it, but didn't intervene or say anything for fear of her husband's wrath and revenge. Though it may seem an absurd claim, incest was not something publicly discussed, or addressed at all for that matter, in polite 1890s society, though instances of it were reported from time to time in newspapers using heavily veiled language. Though there's little evidence to support Carlyle's theory, it remains one of the most compelling and thought-provoking. The crimes of Lizzie Borden have baffled and intrigued the public for well over a century, and the fascination shows no signs of stopping. Countless books, both fiction and non-fiction, as well as films and television programs have been dedicated to her and the disturbing violent murders she committed on that hot August morning in 1892. Her residence, which still stands, is now a bed and breakfast, and is open to the public for those brave enough to spend the night within its former blood-soaked walls. Will we ever know exactly why she did what she did? Perhaps not, but one thing is clear— the mystery of it all, combined with the fame and notoriety she's received as a result, will ensure that she's remembered for all time. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for a brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.